At this point in the service, children in kindergarten and first stand, second grade, are welcome to a primary church. And if you are not going to primary church, would you pray with me? Father, I just pray now that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf as we consider this victory of Jesus. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Well, this was a pretty big week, wasn't it? I mean, from the looks of your faces. Yeah, it reminds me, Charles Spurgeon said, when you speak about heaven, you should, your face should light up. And when you speak about hell, your regular face will do. <laughs> Think about that. You know, Tuesday was a big night, and it's interesting because I, you know, I'm, I love politics and following it, and it's just interesting to see the response to, to, to the election turnout. I mean, I mean, honestly, some of the response, I, I had, I, one of the best things I did afterwards was I didn't watch the news, I haven't watched the radio, and I unsubscribed a few people on Facebook, if you know what I mean. But nonetheless, if you consider all the different reactions and responses, basically it's amazing to me how divided the country is or was, was or is now, that basically people were either completely uh, elated by the results of the election or they were completely deflated by the results of the election. There's very few people that I know who were sort of like, yeah, doesn't really matter. People were elated or they were deflated. In fact, and so people start using big words, right? Like because of this election, now we're facing financial Armageddon. Or both, both sides saying, even the, the ones who are elated and the ones who are deflated, both say this, was, this election was just like an apocalypse. And when I hear things like that, it reminds me of the Princess Bride. Remember the Princess Bride? My favorite character in the Princess Bride is Inigo Montoya. And I love when he says to people, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> you see, what happened during the election was not Armageddon, and it certainly wasn't an apocalypse. But as a result of the election, you and I need an apocalypse. If you are deflated and downcast because of what happened this week, you need the apocalypse. If you're elated and, and, and sort of haughty about the election results, you also need the apocalypse. What do I mean by that? Well, just this, as we look at review, remember what apocalypse means? The, the word revelation also is Greek for apocalypse. They're synonyms. An apocalypse means just this. It means to pull the curtain back to see what reality is. So in other words, whether you're inflated or deflated by the, what happened this week, politically speaking, whether you're, you, you voted for or against gay marriage or smoking weed, whatever it is, whatever it is that you voted for, when you read the book of Revelation, what you're seeing is the curtain being pulled back to see what the real world is like behind the world that you and I exist in. And when you see the world behind the world we exist in, all of a sudden things aren't so grim. All of a sudden, there's really not a reason to be deflated, but in fact there's a reason to be inflated. There's a reason to be uh, courageous. On the other hand, if you're proud and haughty, there's a reason maybe to be a little bit more humble. 
Because when you look at the book of Revelation and the curtain is pulled back, what you see is this one thing which you've heard from me over and over again is that Jesus wins. That Jesus wins. That Jesus is in control of all history, all time, all space. Everything is under his control. And when you see that, you realize also we've said over and over again that Jesus wins in the past. He won in the past by, by going to the cross and bearing the curse for our sin. Completely and utter victory was, happened in the past. He will win in the future. And the question is, is he winning right now? Ask yourself that. That's what we learn in the book of Revelation, that no matter what happens in any election, that Jesus is using it to further his purpose in the world. Whether it was your candidate or someone else's candidate, at the end of the day, Jesus is still working behind the scenes, accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in the world. And today's passage, of all the passages that we've looked at in the book of Revelation, actually is, is the place where we see that Jesus wins. This is victory day. And so when we look at this book, Today, when we look at this passage, we're going to see that Jesus wins, but I'm going to ask three questions. Actually, I'm going to ask three questions and I'm going to give you an extra credit at the end. So the first question we're going to ask is what? What does he win? Or over whom does he win? The second question is why does he win? And the third question is how he wins. In other words, remember I've told you over and over again that the book of Revelation is really just an explanation of the person and work of Jesus. And here it all sort of comes together in one spot. And so the first question we ask is over what is Jesus victorious? And I'm going to actually start at the, the back of the passage or the bottom of the passage instead of from the beginning. Let me read to you verse 17 and following. In verse 17, you read this. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These, were two, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the, the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Have a nice day. Over what or over whom is Jesus victorious here? And the answer is just this. Jesus is a victorious over all who oppose him. Simple as that. As we've been looking at the book of Revelation, we've seen that basically all of humanity sort of sorts out into two camps. Those who follow the dragon and those who follow the lamb. Those who are sons of the devil and those who are sons of God and the person of Jesus. And so what is going on here? Notice... We're looking at, at, the, at the result of the battle before I tell you how Jesus pulls it off because I think it's important. Look at verse 17. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. Now what's interesting, last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 19 and that was the marriage feast of the Lamb. And remember that, that passage ended by saying, Blessed are all who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Blessed are all who are called. Come to dinner. You get to come to dinner and sit at the table where Jesus himself ultimately will be the one who serves the feast. Or 
you can come to the Supper of God. Everyone's destiny is one or the other. Everyone's destiny is some big feast. And at one feast, you sit at the table and partake. And the other feast, you're actually on the menu. Imagine the, 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 the right white rider on, the, on, on one side of a valley with all of his minions behind him, getting ready to bring war. And all the kings of the earth come, and they actually think that they have a chance against him. And right before the battle is beginning to commence, a mighty angel appears in the air, and he makes an invitation. But the invitation is to the vultures and buzzards and carrion eaters to come because this is going to be a feast, boys. Would that not intimidate your side a little bit? Would that not make you want to think twice about, maybe I shouldn't buck this guy after all. But what it's saying is that the, the defeat of those who oppose Jesus is so certain that we can go ahead and invite the buzzards now. Because there will be none who survive opposition to Jesus. None. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came as a suffering servant. Then when he comes again, he comes as a mighty and a victorious warrior. And that's how we see him here, as a mighty and a victorious warrior. And it says, Who does, whose flesh do they eat? They eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses and the riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. There's none who escapes. And the first ones that we see, what's interesting is he says that the beast, and the false prophet, whether or not you believe those are government or, or religion or you think it's the Antichrist and his prophet, those are the first two permanent residents of hell. We're getting to the end now. So the first two permanent residents of hell are the beast and the false prophet. And they are thrown into hell. And who, who else? It says, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. So the next question is, okay, why then does Jesus win? Like, is, is there something behind a, a victory that would be so utter and so complete and so devastating to those who oppose him? And the answer to that question is pretty easy as well. Why does Jesus win? And the answer is simply that Jesus wins because of who he is. Jesus wins because of who he is. That it's his person. Remember, whenever you hear me talk, I say it's the person and work of Jesus. It's not just the work of Jesus. It's, pers it's his person that makes his work actually uh, effective. And so what do we learn? And that's where we're going to look at about five or six things here. The first thing you notice when in verse 11 it says, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, just as a little bit of background, remember, I haven't gone a lot into, I don't even think I've used a chart this whole year. There's still time, though, next week, maybe. But the way that the book of Revelation breaks down, there's a lot of different ways you can break it down. One of the easiest ways is to look at it by, word, by using the word open. And if you, every time that John uses the word open, imagine a new window being opened. In other words, there's a window into something that's happening. And so in the book of Revelation, you have a, a, a prologue, you have an epilogue, and then you have five windows in the middle between those two. And each window is a different chunk. And up to this point, each window has been something that's opened. It always it starts with the word, I saw opened. And sometimes it's a temple, sometimes it's God's sanctuary, maybe it's the ark. But here, all of heaven is opened. This is the last one. This is the final window into the, to the end. And when all of heaven is open, the thing that is most desirable to see is right there. It's Jesus. 
When heaven is opened, what you see is a person, and it's the person of Jesus. And here we see him sitting on a white horse, which always would have connoted victory in those days. And so what else happens? What, why is it that he wins? First thing we see is that Jesus wins because he is faithful and true. Verse 11, the one sitting on the horse, on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Why is he called faithful and true here? And the answer is simply this, it's because Jesus is faithful and true. And I don't mean just faithful and true and that, he, that he's, he's, has integrity, which he does, or has character, which he does, but he is faithful and true with regard to his relationships in particular. That's why it says he judges and goes to war. Those are two different kinds of relationships. And he is faithful and true. So when Jesus says, I will never fail you or forsake you, Jesus actually not only means it, but he has the ability to pull it off. Most of us, if not every single one of us in this room, has control issues of one type or another. You have insecurities of one type or another. That's because our whole lives we've been in relationship with other people, none of whom were 100% completely faithful or completely true. And when you look at the person of Jesus, what you see is the one person in the world who will always be faithful to you, who will always be true, and who will always be there for you, who will never fail you or let you down. In fact, I, I, went ahead, I said it at first service by mistake. I'll go ahead and say it now on purpose. It reminded me when I read this of, of the movie Shaft. It's one of my favorite movies, the Samuel L. Jackson version. And one of the lines I say to my kids all the time is functionally what this means is when he tells people, he says, I might take you down, but I'll never let you down. I might take you down, but I'll never let you down. That's what we see here, that Jesus is faithful and true, and he judges in righteousness. He might take you down, but he'll never let you down. He will always be there. He, he is always faithful to the work of the Father. And because there is no dirt on Jesus, I can't imagine in my wildest dreams running for some kind of political office. Think about it. I, who, who, I, I, can't, I, I wonder, I think anyone who does is insane, to be honest with you, because who would submit their life to the kind of scrutiny that people would run it through? I mean, I, I don't know, I'd probably last an hour maybe, a couple Google searches. Who wants that? There's only one person who could pass the kind of scrutiny that's needed to judge completely and utterly righteously, and that's Jesus. There is no dirt on him. He's utterly and completely perfect. There was no sin found him. And in fact, Corinthians says that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who is completely faithful and true took the place of the one who is not faithful and who is not true so that you and I might become completely and utterly righteous. He's faithful and true. Jesus wins also because his eyes are like fire. It says in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. We've looked at this before earlier. What does that mean? Basically, it's interesting here because that's used, the context that's usually used in is, is with people who say they're Christians, but you're not sure. Or in other, in other words, it's people who are sort of play acting. In other words, Jesus is able to look straight through you and see who you really are. I don't know if you've ever taken personality tests. You know, there's some, I remember when I was working for Eli Lilly, we took one that you would take it, and at the end, they would give you two circles. One circle would be who you are, and one circle would be who you want, who people, you want people to think you are. Interestingly enough, I only have one circle, but that's another story. And what, what we know when Jesus, by saying that Jesus has eyes like flames of fire, 
The, the only circle that Jesus sees, that he wants to see, is who you really are. You can, you can try and act like you're okay. You can try and act like you're good enough. You can try and uh, work all the righteousness you want. But at the end of the day, Jesus knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly who you are with regard to your heart. He knows exactly who you are with regard to, to any of your sins. You can hide it from your husband. You can hide it from your wife. You can hide it from your parents. But guess what? There's one person you can't hide from. His name is Jesus. He has eyes like flame of fire. What else? He also says Jesus wins because he has crowns. Notice it says it, um, on his head are many diadems or crowns. What, what's being said here? Remember the beast had, I think, ten if I remember correctly. Ten crowns, a perfect number. He's acting like he was in charge. Jesus doesn't have ten, he has many. And what this is saying to us is that no matter who you think is in charge, really there's someone who is king over them. No matter what a political candidate you voted for, guess what? There's someone that he ultimately or she would be accountable to. It's the one who wears many crowns, who's the king, not over just one nation, Israel, but who's the king over every nation. And ask yourself this, do you really believe that? I mean, if you t- 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 talk to a lot of Christians, especially at election time, you think, oh, someday Jesus is going to be king over everything. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus is king over everything right now. He's king over everything right now. The one who gave himself for you, the one who gave everything for you, who died for you, who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died and rose from the dead is now king over all things and you and I are despondent and despairing because one person or another got elected to be president. Jesus is king over our presidents. He's king over Europe's presidents. He's king over the Middle East. He's king over all things. And the question is, do you really believe that? Why else does he win? It's because of this name that no one knows. It says in verse, the end of that verse, it says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now it's interesting because several times in this passage it said he has this name written on him or this, he is called by this name. What is this name that no one knows but himself? And it probably has to do with this. It has to do with the fact that he is the king over all things and that no one can control him. In other words, in the ancient Near East, if you wanted to control somebody, there was this idea that you had a, a name that people called you, and then you had a true name. And if someone could figure out your true name, they could use that to control you. So, for example, if you remember Genesis 32, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel? He's wrestling, but what does he keep doing? He says, tell me your name, because he thinks if he can get the name of this angel, he can control it. And when Jesus is walking in the Gospels, he's walking through Galilee, and people who are demon-possessed, do you ever wonder, why are they shout out, Holy One of God, are they worshiping him? Son of David, they're not. What they're doing is they're just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if anything will stick. I mean, imagine the demons there, calling Holy One of God, see if that works. Holy One of God, nope, try something else. Son of David, Son of David, nope, nothing else. It doesn't work. They could not control him because Jesus cannot be controlled because there's this, here at least, there's this name that he alone knows. You don't have his secret name and you can't control him because Jesus is the one in charge, not you. Jesus is the one in charge, not the leaders of nations. Jesus is the one in charge, not the Illuminati. Jesus is in charge, you know, not any conspiracy theory that you want to believe. Jesus is the one who is ultimately in charge. He also wins because he has a robe dipped in blood. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Look at verse 14 too. It says, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. What's interesting about this robe dipped in blood is that the robe is dipped in blood before there's any battle that we see. In other words, the robe is dipped in blood before anything happens. So the question we have to ask is, then whose blood is it? And the answer, pretty simple, is probably his. Because those who follow him, did you notice what their robes were like? Clean and white as the driven snow. They're dressed like either brides or they're dressed like priests and they're on white horses. Remember we learned in Revelation chapter 7 that they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb because the Lamb's robe is bloody. Before this end battle ever happens, their robes are clean. Because the the Lamb will trample the winepress of the wrath of God, they will not have to, but instead they ride with Him. And as we continue, Jesus wins because he's the word of God. Notice it says, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And let me read to you John 1. I mean, if we believe, most people believe that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation and wrote the book of John. And notice how he opens the book of John. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was, made, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without him, nothing that was made was made. What's the point there? When Jesus is called the Word of God, the one who comes to battle on behalf of his people, the one that comes to battle in order to make all things new is the one who also created all things. That these people who have arrayed themselves against Jesus have arrayed themselves against the very creator of the whole universe. And that is a losing bet every single time. That Jesus is not just some guy, he's not just an out-of-work carpenter, but he is the very word of God incarnate. through whom all things were made and all things were created, all things ultimately being reconciled to himself. Jesus wins because he's the word of God. And then finally, notice verse uh, 16. It says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, does he have it written in both places? You know, that's that's the argument. Probably what's happening here, he probably doesn't have a tattoo there. But instead, it says on his robe, that is, on his thigh. In other words, right in the the thigh area is where you would keep your sword. And most people believe there's some kind of association between the fact that he's written right there where he keeps his sword is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That in case you were wondering, because of the crowns and because of the faithful and true and because of the Word of God, at the end of the day, he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what makes that so important is because when Caesar used to walk into the Senate, do you know what they used to say? Probably, oh yay, oh yay, rise. And then they would say, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the seven churches who, in, that were being persecuted by Rome, when they read this, it would have rang pretty clearly that Caesar might think he's in charge, but he's not. The one who really is in charge is the one who is truly king of kings and lord of lords, and that is Jesus. Caesar is nothing compared to Jesus. We'll see more of that in a moment. Question number three, verses 15 and 21. The question is, how does Jesus win? Let me read verse 15. It says, from, a, from his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then 21 says, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on his horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So the question is, how does Jesus win here? And the answer is pretty simple. Jesus wins by speaking. Simple as that. Jesus wins by speaking. Let me work that out for you. Remember in Genesis how all of creation happens? God speaks and everything comes into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And then what happened? God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. So the same one who now goes to battle is the one who spoke creation into being. And the one who spoke creation into being is also the one we read about in Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 1, let me read this to you. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the author of Hebrews is saying that throughout the whole Old Testament, God spoke to us through prophets, right? So Moses came to Pharaoh and he said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And it's interesting when you see his son speaking, how much power he has. I mean, think about it. When you consider the Jesus that you see in the Gospels, how does he get anything done? He just speaks. Comes across someone who's demon-possessed, come out. That's all he does. Come out of him. Dead little girl, little girl, rise, come. The wind and the waves are going crazy. The disciples don't know what's going to happen. Shh, shh. Be quiet. His best friend dies, Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth, come out. In other words, when Jesus wants to get something done in the Gospels, in his own ministry, he just speaks and it happens. It is the word of his testimony. It is the word of power. And it is his very... Uh, notice, the, remember the last verse we looked at? It says the, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus or something like that. It's the message of his person and work and the gospel in and through us and him that is the thing that is effective in changing the world. You see, the question you have to ask yourself is this. Is the might or power of what? Or the statement. In other words, fill in the blank there. The might or power of... The United States is no match for the sword of Jesus. The might or power of Caesar, no match for the sword of Jesus. The might or power of Europe, the might or power of the Middle East, the might or power of any living person, any organization, any government is no match for the sword of Jesus. And what is the sword of Jesus? It's just his word. It's just his speaking. And what does he accomplish through his speaking? You'll notice you'll, you're going to talk a lot more about these things at your growth groups this week. Um, notice in 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 15, verse 24, it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, the question you've got to ask yourself is, do you really believe that the testimony of Jesus, this little sword, is able to change anything? 
Or imagine you remember one of those seven churches and you look and see the might and power of, of Caesar and you say, is the word of Christ able to do anything in the midst of this? You see, at some level, the whole book of Revelation is building up to this point to give the church uh, confidence in the word of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. That this little sword, can it change organizations? Can it change empires? And it has historically and it will in the future. The question is, do you believe that? Honestly, most Christians don't. Or at least we don't seem to. Because if you really believed that the word of Jesus, that this thing we call the gospel, was able to change anybody, why don't you tell them? If it's willing to change any institution, why don't you bear witness there? Why don't you invite people? All of these kind of things. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to encourage you that this sword that we think is not a big deal is the thing that Jesus uses to conquer all of his enemies and ours. The question is, do you really believe that it is more powerful than the government, more powerful than, than any institution? And according to the book of Revelation, it is. And the last thing we look at is your extra credit question. You notice as we've been considering all this, the book of Revelation, and especially this chapter, that you saw the, the, bird, the carrion birds after the battle, and you see Jesus before the battle, but you, did you notice there really was never a battle? I mean, the Battle of Armageddon, in some sense, is very anticlimactic because nothing happens there. And the question is, why was there no final battle here in chapter 19? And the answer is pretty simple, is that the final battle happened at the cross. At the cross, remember I said Jesus won in the past, Jesus will win in the future, and he's winning right now, and that victory is always in and through his cross. And at the cross, he gave up his life for those who would trust him, and those who would trust him would be victorious in him now and forevermore. You see, the final battle is done. The question now is, how will we live into it? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would just uh, come and you would apply this word to our heart as we are discouraged maybe about uh, uh, whether it's presidential election results or local election results or just our job or our marriage or whatever it is. I pray that you would speak a powerful word into our lives. Um, and Jesus, I pray that your word would be effective in our lives, that you, by your spirit, would come and change us. Father, we thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.